about what we're saying. That you can have all of this world, but give me Jesus. And we wonder when we come to worship, are we, are we willing to give it all up for Christ? There's so many things we hold so tightly to. So many other things we worship. So many other things we idolize. So many other things we look to for happiness and comfort and peace. Things that only you, God, can provide for us. And so one of the things that happens, we hope, when we come to worship is we just give those things to you and say, God, take this. It's yours. Whatever you want to do with my life, whatever you want to do with my family, with my resources, whatever you want to do in this decision, whatever you want to do in this sickness, God, it's yours. I trust you. And the reality is so many of us in this room are in places like that. Crossroads in life where we're wondering, can we trust you, God, in this? Can we trust you with this trial? Can, you tr- can we trust you with this kid? Can we trust you with our parents, with this relationship, with our cancer? Can we trust you? And the overwhelming testimony of Scripture that we've seen all through the Old Testament is that you're a God who's faithful and true, who is worthy to be trusted. You're a God who hasn't forgotten us, who never forgets us and never will. And so, God, whatever we're walking through and bring into this room this morning, I just pray above all that we could trust you. That we could lay whatever it is on the table before you and say, God, in this I trust you too. And we would see how you're faithful in it. And so, God, as we turn our attention to your word, as we look at Malachi together, would you meet us here? This word that's powerful and penetrating, it cuts us like a two-edged sword right into our very souls. That's what we need. And so, God, show up again. Hold to your promise that your word never returns void, that it accomplishes its full purpose in our lives. Change us to be more like Jesus over these next few minutes. We pray it in his name. Amen. Malachi chapter 2. Verse 17, and then going through chapter 3, verse 6. Malachi 2, 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. 
I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of the hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is the word of the Lord. All right, we made it. If you are reading through the Bible with us, we have made it through the Old Testament. You might not have thought we had ever gotten to this point. Uh, I just want to take a moment and celebrate. For many of you, this is probably more scripture than you've ever read before in your life in a single year. And that alone is worth celebrating. That alone is worth drawing attention to. But at the same time, we're very thankful we've done with the Old Testament, right? So we have one uh, sermon left in the Old Testament in Malachi today. Even as we've already seen this week, we've turned our attention to the New Testament and started to see how God is working there. So Malachi is a minor prophet, which doesn't mean he's less important. It just means he's less wordy. Possibly he was introverted. He's just got less to say. Right, which you're thankful for. After reading Ezekiel and Jeremiah, you're like, less is better. I'll call him the major prophet if that makes him feel better. So we're in Malachi, and what happens in Malachi is that uh, God's people have some problems with how God is acting. Namely this, in Ezra and Nehemiah, we saw the people come back from exile, and the walls rebuilt, and the temple rebuilt, and the law reread, and God's people assume it's all good from here. It's going to be smooth sailing from this point forward. The Messiah is going to come. God's going to bless us. He's going to give us the desires of our heart. All things are going to be good. But what Malachi shows us is that even exile, even God bringing them out of exile, didn't kill the well-worn paths of sin in their hearts. They're still the same people. They're still just as disobedient as their dads and granddads were, and so we've still got issues. On top of that, Malachi tells us that they're still under Persian rule. They still, uh, their crops are being uh, devastated by locusts and by droughts, and the Messiah is nowhere to be found. They assumed he would have been here by now, that surely when we come back from exile, this is finally when he comes. But he hasn't come. And so they start to complain against God. They've got some issues with him. And the issue that we see in chapter 2, verse 17 is this. Where is the God of justice? Like, where is that God that from the plagues, right? Where is the God uh, that killed the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel? Where is that God? Because all it seems like right now is that good things are happening to bad people. And we, the good people, are suffering. God, I thought you were good. I thought you were just. I thought you were faithful. I thought you were going to show up. Where in the world are you? And so what we see in chapter 3 that we're going to look at really today, these six verses, is God's response to that complaint. God's response to the complaint that he's slow in fulfilling his promises and that he's not just. And I want to show you just three things quickly before we come to this table that we learned that are so incredibly relevant for us today. The first one is this. God's timing is not our timing. God's timing is not our timing. So if they're already frustrated that the Messiah hasn't shown up yet, imagine when they realize it's going to be 400 more years before he comes. In fact, after the book of Malachi, God goes radio silent. 
He stops speaking altogether for four centuries. He doesn't show up like they thought he was going to show up. He acts a lot slower than they thought he was going to. And this is what we learn when we see that. We learn that God's timing is not our timing, or you could say it this way. Waiting on God is a painful but necessary part of the Christian life. That so much of the Christian life is waiting on God. Waiting. When is he going to show up? When is he going to act? Now you hear that word waiting and it absolutely sends chills down your spine, right? I mean, could anything be more uh, adverse to the American culture than waiting? We get everything we want right when we want it. I got an Amazon Prime same day delivery the other day. Same day. I didn't even know that was a thing. And so we hear things like waiting on God and it's like, oh, don't love that. Love efficiency, right? Love quick acting. Love fast pace. God showing up when he's supposed to showing up and do what he's supposed to do. Uh, let me just hammer this down for us. I don't know if you, any of you have read John Mark Comer's book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. But in that book, he gives a list of suggestions. These are suggestions, not biblical commands. Don't get mad at me when I read them. In just a second, okay? Because you're going to be tempted to. Suggestions for how you can slow your life down on purpose to be present with God. So here are a couple that he gives. And just start to see what your heart does when you think about waiting and maybe making yourself wait. So he says, do this. Always drive the speed limit. It gets worse. Voluntarily get in the slow lane and stay there no matter what. Show up 15 minutes early for appointments and don't bring your phone. Intentionally choose the longest line at the grocery store. That one bothers me the most. I don't know why. I think that I'm the world's best person at picking the shortest line at the grocery store. I can tell who's going to be slow. Anyways, uh, strive to never multitask, which I need to define for some of you because you don't even know there's another way. Uh, meaning, do one thing at one time on purpose. Cook something elaborate that takes hours to finish. When you're walking somewhere, walk as slowly as you can. Don't listen to books or podcasts or the Bible recap on anything other than one-time speed. That cuts for some of you <laughs> very deeply. We laugh, but those things also make our skin crawl because the reality is our uh, mindset is so opposite to waiting. We want what we want when we want it as quickly as we can get it. But the reality of scripture is that God's timeline is almost always more drawn out than we want it to be. He's almost always slower than we would expect or desire, which means a huge part of the Christian life is spent waiting, waiting for God to answer, for him to work, waiting to see how this is going to work out for our good. All of us in this room are waiting on something. And typically what we do when we have to wait is this. We try to hurry along the waiting. We think, just God, get me to the next chapter that's surely going to be better. We just try to make it through that season as quickly as we can. We put our head down and we check out and we just want to get through the waiting. Because we think waiting is a waste. It's a waste of time. But the Puritans called waiting... God's school of waiting. 
Because they knew that God wants to teach us something while we wait that we could never learn in any other season of life. That there's something about waiting that matures us and sanctifies us like nothing else. So let me just show you a couple things we learn when we wait. The first one is this. Waiting creates dependence. Waiting creates dependence. One of the dangers of living in one of the richest countries in the history of the world is that we don't feel dependent on God. Think about how little in your day for daily needs, uh, for whatever it is, you are for God to show up. And we like that. We like that. We don't want to be dependent. We're an individualistic culture. We want to be able to do things on our own. We don't want to be reliant on other people. And deep in our hearts, we don't want to be reliant on God. But what happens when we wait is that illusion of control that things like money and comfort and safety give us is ripped away. And what we start to realize is, I am totally dependent on God to act in this circumstance. There are some things I cannot change. Some things that only God can do. And so when we're waiting, we're humbled to realize I'm dependent on God. I am created. Only he is the creator. Only he can show up in this situation and it reminds us of our dependence that we have on God. The second thing it teaches us is that waiting reminds us that the silence of God is not the absence of God. The silence of God is not necessarily the absence of God. See, here's what happens. We want immediate results. We want God to answer our prayer the first time, to do exactly what we want, when we want it, what we think. And when God doesn't do that, we think, God's forgotten me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. God's not listening to my prayers. The silence of God must surely mean the absence of God. But scripture reminds us that while God is always good, the arc of his goodness is typically longer than we expect. God's goodness shows up over time. We saw this in the book of Esther, didn't we? If you read through that, we didn't get to preach on it. But Esther is only one of two books in the Bible where God is not mentioned at all. We don't see his name one time. And we kind of like read Esther in two days, so it was pretty quick for us. We got through the plot and we were like, that was cool. But if you really look at the timeline, Esther and Mordecai and the Jews are waiting for a long time to God, for God to show up. Because they feel like they're about to get wiped off the face of the planet. But when we step back and we look at the whole book of Esther, God is not mentioned. He's seemingly silent. But that doesn't mean that he's not present. God is at work in a thousand ways in the book of Esther that we can see with just a little bit of perspective. And we have to work that reality deep into our hearts because so much of life is spent waiting. And if we don't realize that God's silence doesn't mean his absence, we're going to struggle. Because when we wait for a spouse, but we're still single, or we wait for kids but still have infertility, or we're begging God to save our prodigal kid, but they still haven't come home. While we wait for peace, but all we have is anxiety. While we wait for the clear scan, but we still have cancer. When God is silent, does that mean he's absent? That's the question. And Malachi teaches us 
that God's silence is not necessarily an indication of his absence, that God is at work even when it feels like we're not at work. The arc of his goodness is just longer than we would expect. That's so hard for us to believe because we get locked into a moment where God's not answering and it feels like he never will and waiting can feel overwhelming. I had this experience uh, with my three-year-old daughter the other day. We were doing a family movie night and she was so excited. We had been talking about it for a couple of days. So it was on Friday night and on Friday at like lunchtime, she was like, dad, when do we get to watch the movie? And I said, tonight, like after we put your sister to bed, we're going to watch the movie. She said, how long is tonight? I said, about six hours from now. And she said, six hours is too long. (laughs) Because she just lacks perspective, right? For her, six hours is basically an eternity. If the gap between my perspective and her perspective is that great, how big is the gap between your perspective and God's? Brothers and sisters, when we can see our lives from God's perspective... When we get on the other side of eternity and we can see what God has done, we won't accuse him of a single thing other than being far more faithful than we ever imagined. Listen to what Johnny Erickson Tata says. She says, one day we will stand amazed to see the top side of the tapestry and how beautifully God embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good and his glory. The second thing we learn from this passage is that God's goals are not our goals. God's goals are not our goals. So God's timing is not our timing, but he still keeps his promises. He tells us in verse 1 of chapter 3 that he is going to send his messenger. So that's John the Baptist, right? Uh, Jesus' eccentric cousin, the one you avoid at family reunions, who does the weird stuff. You've all got one. If you don't know who it is, it's you, that whole thing. So this is John the Baptist. So the messenger is coming to prepare the way. Look at what it says, though. To prepare the way before who? Me. Ha! What a statement. A messenger is coming to prepare the way before me, that God is coming to live with us. And we just have to take a moment to remember that this makes Christianity different than any religion in the world. That we don't have a God who says, hey, you're down there in the mess. Here's a plan to get you out of the mess and you can come be with me. Here's a few steps. Here's a roadmap. Here's a how you do it? Christianity says God comes and he gets in the mess with us. That God comes to us and says, I'm going to be with you so that you can be with me for eternity. And so the people think, finally, this is what we've been waiting for. We've been exiled, oppressed, abandoned, tortured. The time is now. The Messiah is coming. Watch your back, other nations. But listen to this transition from verse 1 to verse 2, from this promise to the reality. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Good news, right? Verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? He is like a refiner's, or excuse me, who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Here's their problem. They have this great burden of knowing what's wrong with everyone else. Some of you also share that burden. It's very hard to live life like that. 
where we realize everyone else has issues that God needs to deal with. They never considered that when God came, he was coming to deal with them, to purify them, to deal with their sin. He says in verse three, he will sit as the refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi. This is the inner circle, the religious workers, the priests. God says, I'll start with them and work our way out from there. And he gives us two pictures of what that's going to look like. He says it's like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. Both metaphors carry the same uh, meaning, which is God, when he comes, is coming to purify us. He's coming to burn off all the imperfections. And so let's just focus on this metaphor of fire and two things that it teaches us. First, you don't play with fire, right? You learned that when you were a little kid. Fire is to be taken seriously and not to be played with, not to be messed around with. It's dangerous because it changes everything that it touches, which teaches us this. Christianity is nothing to be played around with. It makes for a really bad hobby. Because God, when he comes, comes as fire. And fire changes everything that it touches. And so when you submit your life to this God, it might not be as easy and comfortable and perfect and happy as you imagine. It might be painful. It will be painful. It will be uncomfortable. And then secondly... You don't play with fire, but we also learn he doesn't come as an incinerator. So he doesn't come as an out-of-control fire that burns up everything in its path. There will be people in heaven, right? Which means God, when he comes, is not just going to kill all of us who have sin. He comes as a refiner's fire, a fire that's under control and has a specific purpose. To burn off all our imperfections. And to turn us into beautiful people, far more beautiful than we ever realized we could be. The picture that God's giving us is this. When God comes into our lives, he loves us right where we are, but he has absolutely no intention of leaving us there. He has every intention of refining us, of purifying us, of changing us, which is not always going to be a pleasant exercise for us. But if we don't realize that, if we don't realize that God's goal is to change us, we'll always be frustrated with God. We'll always be complaining with God because his goals are often different than our goals. We want to be comfortable. God wants to produce character. We want to be happy. God wants you to be happy too, but he does it through making you holy. We want life to be easy, but God knows that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character hope. And so when we start to realize that God's goal for us is to change us and refine us, we can start to line up our goals with his goals. Listen to what J.I. Packer says. He says, still he seeks the fellowship of his people and will send to them as gifts both joy and sorrow to detach their hands from the things of this world and attach those things to himself. Meaning this. That God will rip things out of your hands and God will withhold things from you that you thought you could not live without. 
But we realize that since God's goal is to purify us and refine us and he loves us and he wants to make us into beautiful people, that even in those seasons we can trust him because his goal is not to punish us, it's to purify us. I always love this in, um, I don't know how many of you are in journey groups, but in journey groups we do the My Spiritual Journey So Far. And it maps out high points and low points in your spiritual life. And it's fascinating that people's high points spiritually are almost always low points in the rest of life. That where God did his best work is when life was most messy. Because his goal, even when he sends hard things into our lives, is to change us. So he's always working in us. And then the third thing we see from this passage is that God's unchanging character is our only hope. God's unchanging character is our only hope. Look back at verse 6. I don't know if that's on the screen. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God's unchanging character is our only hope. So if you remember their complaint... It's basically, God, surely you've changed because you're supposed to be a God of justice and you haven't showed up. And God turns the tables and says to them, what you don't realize is that I haven't changed, which is good news for you because if I had changed, I would have wiped you off the face of the earth a long time ago. The reality is I've committed to be gracious and merciful to you. I said I would do it. I have done it. I will continue to do it. I haven't changed and I never will which is amazing news for you. (laughs) And it's amazing news for me. Because if God did change, it would mean he could change his mind about us. And if he could change his mind about us, he surely would have. Because we are very frustrating people to deal with. We are very difficult. We are very slow to change. We are very obstinate. But the reality of scripture is that God doesn't change. He found you at your worst and he's not going to change his mind about you. Which means we have to believe things like this. That God hasn't grown tired of you. In your life right now, God's not just tolerating you. Like you're about to break the last straw. No, God hasn't changed what he thinks about you. He waits to cover you with mercy and grace. He's always consistent, and nowhere is that reality more clear than when we flip the page to the New Testament and we see the perfect imprint of the character of God in the person of Christ. Where do we see better that God doesn't change than in the life of Jesus? So I want to end here where we began in the first sermon in the Old Testament. We read a quote from Tim Keller talking about how all of Scripture points us to Jesus. And I just want to kind of close that out for us. How we've seen Jesus pointed to over and over again in the Old Testament, every step of the way. Jesus is the greater Adam, who unlike the first Adam, passed his test in the garden and gifts his obedience to us. Jesus is the greater Abel, who was innocently slain and whose blood cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the greater Noah. He finds favor in the eyes of the Lord and rescues humanity from the judgment it deserves. Jesus is the greater Abraham who answered the call of God to leave everything that was comfortable to create a new people of God. Jesus is the greater Isaac who was not only offered up by his father on the mount but actually gave his life as our substitute. 
Jesus is the greater Joseph, who sits at the right hand of the king and uses his power to save those who betray him. He's the greater Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and God. He's the greater Joshua, who defeats our greatest enemies so he can lead us into the promised land. He's the greater Samson, who ironically achieves his greatest victory through his death. He's the greatest Job, who the truly innocent sufferer, who suffers and intercedes for his stupid friends. He's the greater Boaz, who fulfills every demand of the law and pays the ultimate price to redeem us. He's the greater David, our shepherd champion, whose victory becomes our victory, though we never lifted a stone to accomplish it ourselves. He's the greater Jeremiah, who weeps over Jerusalem and then willingly enters into it to be destroyed himself. He is the greater Daniel, who comes not just to live faithfully, but perfectly in a foreign land among his enemies. He's the greater Esther, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people from the law that demanded their death. He is the greater Ezra, who didn't just come to reestablish the law, but to fulfill it perfectly in our place. Jesus is the greater Jonah, who spent three days in the belly of the earth before he rose again for our salvation. Jesus is the greater Hosea, who at great cost to himself never stops pursuing his unfaithful bride. He is the rock of Moses, the true Passover lamb, the true temple, the one who is truly lifted up on the pole as a curse. He is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And he is the ultimate picture that God never changes. And that he's not going to change his mind about you because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray together. Father, we, um, we, want, to believe these, uh, we want to believe these truths. But they're hard for us to grasp that your timing is not our timing. That God, you, your goals are not our goals. That you work in ways that we wouldn't always choose. But God, above all, we can see that you're faithful. That you do not change. That you love us. And you're not going to change your mind about us. And so as we come to this table and we're spiritually nourished and grown in grace. Would you help this moment just to give us the strength to go one more day, one more week following Jesus. And as we do, to remember that you're the faithful God who loves us, who never leaves us or forsakes us. We pray it all in Christ's name. Let's pray this communion prayer together.